Hey, it's Greg Brown. Grab your logbook, because it's time for another cockpit adventure from the flying carpet. I'm an aviation author, adventure columnist, photographer, former National Flight Instructor of the Year, and Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. The Flying Carpet is a four-place single-engine light airplane. In it, my wife Jean and I have long traveled the North American continent, searching behind clouds for the real America, and experiencing aerial adventures like today's all along the way. Learn more at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, where you can also see photos from most episodes. And I'd appreciate your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Recently, I was awarded the FAA's Wright Brothers Master Pilot Award for 50 years of safe piloting. Well, today I'm going to share some of the developments I've experienced over those 50 years. This story kicks off a whole series of future episodes sharing my many cockpit adventures over those five decades. Okay, everyone, hop aboard my flying carpet, snug up your seatbelts, and prepare for takeoff on today's adventure, flight number 23, 50 years aloft. Clear prop. I was a University of Wisconsin sophomore in Madison when I took flight as a private pilot in 1972, and I've yet to come down. While plenty of aviators have flown longer than me, it's astonishing to consider that since then, I've soared through more than 40% of the entire history of powered flight. Five decades and thousands of flight hours later, the technology has changed, but not the adventure. What an exclusive club we pilots belong to. Every student pilot must overcome challenges, right? Well, at the time, mine included an unusual one. My car back then was an old 1939 Chevy, which, along with a foot starter, single windshield wiper, and choke, featured a pull throttle on the dash in addition to the accelerator pedal. That hand throttle was probably intended to up the idle in cold weather, but I'd learned to employ it as a crude cruise control on the highway. Airplanes, however, feature push throttles. So upon starting flight lessons, I had to overcome the bad habit of pulling the throttle to add power and learn to push it instead. That led to some very interesting flight experiences, especially when it came to mastering stall recovery and landings while using the throttle improperly. My primary instructor, Bob Better, was a hands-off guy. I remember escaping a flock of Air National Guard F-102 Delta Daggers clogging Madison's traffic pattern one day, only to inadvertently enter a spin due to inadequate rudder application during stall practice. What are you going to do? asked Bob his arms passively crossed while the world whirled around us? I don't know, I replied. Without touching the controls, Bob calmly instructed me to pitch the nose down and apply opposite rudder. He probably had to repeat that more than once. 
But once recovering with my own hands under his guidance, I would never again doubt my ability to escape a spin. More wisdom from Bob for a new VFR pilot. Never fly into weather you can't see through. I finally soloed on May 16, 1972. While the mechanics of flight haven't changed since then, the training requirements have. Then, as in most cases now, a minimum of 40 hours of flight time was required to qualify for a private pilot certificate. But over time, the addition of more and more instructional requirements has reduced the solo flight requirements by half. So in 1972, 20 solo flight hours were required to qualify for my check ride, including 10 hours of solo cross country. That included a long cross country of 300 nautical miles between three airports at least 100 nautical miles apart. Quite a day's excursion in a 100 mile an hour Cessna 150. To prove we'd landed at every destination, we collected logbook signatures from aircraft fuelers or the girls working each airport's service desk. Today, however, pilots in training must accumulate only 10 hours of solo, including just 5 hours of cross-country. And that long solo cross-country has been trimmed to only 150 nautical miles. Today's additional dual instruction certainly covers important material. For example, no night cross-country training was required in 1972. Few of us would argue how important that is. And airspace at the time was far simpler. There were, however, benefits to flying twice the solo time with more rigorous cross-countries. Those included additional confidence building and better planning and command skills for new pilots. Anyway, few memories survive from the autumn day I earned my wings at Truax Field in Madison, Wisconsin, now called Dane County Regional Airport. Just that examiner Claude Frickleton was dissatisfied with my sparing use of elevator trim in the traffic pattern. Here, I'll show you, he said, and demonstrated our final touchdown using only rudder pedals and the elevator trim wheel. My logbook yields no hint of excitement at passing that day nor any appreciation of the decades of joy and aerial adventure to follow. Only that following nine months of sporadic training between college classes and breaks, I earned my pilot certificate the day before Thanksgiving, 1972, with 48 flight hours. More telling entries reveal that within days afterward, I treated my then-girlfriend and my best buddy to airplane rides. Flying has never been inexpensive. True, I paid only $11 per hour to rent University of Wisconsin Flying Club Cessna 150s, and the seemingly outrageous sum of $14 per hour at Frickleton Aviation's flight school when the club planes were busy. Instructor time ran $6 to $8 per hour. I recently found my original checkride receipt for a now astounding $34.98, including 
airplane rental, and examiner fee. All that sounds cheap, but at the time it cost just 25 cents per gallon of gasoline to fuel my old Chevy, and two to $3,000 bought a new car. Do the math and you'll see that everything costs less than one-tenth of today's prices. In the context of 1972 income and expenses, flight training costs the same or even a bit more than it does today. What has changed is the relative cost of new airplanes. In those days, most everyone trained in and fit into fuel-efficient two-seater aircraft. Also, the industry produced some 18,000 aircraft per year in the 1970s versus just a few hundred per year today. Between lesser equipment and the economies of manufacturing many more airplanes, a basic new four-place aircraft cost about $15,000 in 1972, about five times the price of a nice new car. Today's ratio is greater than 10 to 1. To finance my flying habit in the early days after earning my wings, I solicited innumerable expense-sharing passengers. Some tarnished our trips, but they kept me aloft when otherwise I couldn't afford it. Students hitching lifts via university rideshare bulletin boards were mighty surprised when offered weekend rides home by airplane. Few girls I dated were interested in flying. I always do my laundry on Saturdays, said one when I proposed a lunch flight, so I offered an alternate date. Sorry, she said, on Tuesdays I wash my hair. No kidding. Anyway, when I met my wife-to-be, Jean, two years later, she was stuck with my flying as part of the package. By then I'd transferred to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Given a student's limited budget, our early flight adventures were mostly limited to 50-mile dinner dates to the airport's steakhouse at nearby Mattoon, Illinois, and to motorcycle parts runs to nearby Decatur, Illinois. Over the years came more flying clubs, and ultimately Gene and I invested in our own decades-old fits-our-budget airplane. You know it, the flying carpet, a four-place Cessna 182. The biggest fear of new pilots in those pre-GPS days was getting lost. Like today's aviators, we learned three basic navigation methods. Radio navigation, dead reckoning, and pilotage. But unlike today, when those are largely training exercises, for us those were the only ways to get to our destinations. Now, radio navigation is accomplished by hopping between a series of ground-based VORs. And for you geeks, that stands for Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Range Stations. Along with mastering to-from navigation skills via tiny instrument needles and identifying our position via intersecting radials from multiple VORs, we learned arcane skills like calculating your distance from a lateral VOR based on estimated ground speed and the rate of change crossing VOR radials. Dead Reckoning, 
refers to mathematically calculating magnetic heading and speed based on your desired course corrected for compass errors and forecast winds. This method was employed by Lindbergh, for example, to cross the Atlantic, as it requires neither radio navigation nor identifying landmarks. It's all pre-calculated. Finally, there's pilotage, which refers to the practice of identifying your position via landmarks out the window and thereby tracing your route on charts. In its purest form, that's often accomplished by following roads, railroads, or rivers. Unless a river or highway extended the length of your trip, radio navigation was usually the most straightforward method. But although there were many more VOR stations in those days than there are now, coverage was spotty in some areas, and reception often poor to non-existent at low altitudes, say, when flying under a cloud layer. So VFR pilots also had to be skilled at integrating pilotage and dead reckoning. The only way to determine time to your destination was to time your passage between known checkpoints, say, towns or rivers or airports, divide the distance by time flown between them, and apply the resulting wind-corrected ground speed to the remainder of the trip. The mechanical E6B whiz wheel flight computers we used for that purpose were relatively easy for us to master back then because everybody learned slide rule in school. Still, when passengers asked, what's that little town beneath us, we rarely knew off the cuff unless it was a predetermined checkpoint. By the time we computed position based on estimated ground speed and last checkpoint crossing time, the place was out of sight. To counter passenger fears that our pilot is lost, I learned to explain that navigating between checkpoints is like driving an interstate highway. You might not know your precise location between exits, but you knew where you'd been and where you were going. I do remember panicking on a flight home from Winona, Minnesota to Madison one day about whether an unforecast crosswind was blowing me off course because I couldn't receive any VORs nor recognize any landmarks. The rule of thumb under such circumstances was to maintain your calculated heading rather than wandering around and getting even more lost. Eventually, I encountered the unmistakable Wisconsin River and then Interstate 90 and U.S. Highway 151, which together funneled me back to Madison. We navigated in macro scale back then. If pilots did get seriously lost, some flight service stations offered a service called DF Steer. DF Steer required special direction finder equipment at flight service, but not in the plane. Flight service specialists would take a radio bearing from your transmissions, then have you turn 90 degrees for a defined number of minutes, and then take a new bearing. So by triangulation and time, they could estimate your distance and direction from the antenna. Armed with distance and direction, they could estimate your location and direct you toward an airport. Needless to say, any sort of time or distance to station readout was unimaginable in those days, much less a moving map display. No wonder GPS is such a hit. Oh, and lacking cell phones or handheld radios, 
We were taught to continuously monitor for emergency landing sites near highways or farmhouses where we might easily walk for help. Pre-flight weather briefings we obtained by telephone or in person at one of the many then-widespread local flight service stations. Phoning was convenient enough, but more than once I couldn't find a payphone after hours or lacked pocket change to phone for briefings, especially late at night. When blessed with a flight service station on the field, we thumbed through cascading rolls of teletype paper seeking and deciphering encoded current and forecast weather along our route. Hence the twisted DNA of weather encoding that still frustrates new pilots. For the big weather picture, we turned to hand-drawn weather depiction and radar summary charts papering the walls. In-flight weather reports were limited to forecasts, pilot reports, and last hour's quote-unquote sequence reports radioed by flight service station specialists. Thunderstorm information they reported from those hand-drawn radar summary charts I mentioned, often as much as four hours old. In other words, generally useless. Years later came a huge advance, FlightWatch an in-flight weather advisory service that featured a single nationwide radio frequency through which flight service specialists offered thunderstorm guidance based on live weather radar. So that was a big improvement. But without a doubt, modern cockpit data link weather is the single biggest safety improvement in my five decades of flying. These offer near real-time radar imagery alongside other weather information. No longer must pilots wonder what lurks on the other side of that rain shower? The second biggest improvement, by the way, is noise-canceling headsets. Imagine interpreting radio calls and your screaming flight instructor without the benefit of a headset, intercom, or even earplugs. While many modern aircraft have only incrementally evolved, the big revolution has been in avionics. In 1972, most VFR aircraft featured one semi-reliable NAVCOM radio and nothing else. More than once I had to decipher out-of-kilter radio frequencies after the radio tuning knob drive belt slipped. Since then, there have been constant avionics improvements, and today's microelectronics have lowered flying costs even while enhancing safety. Portable GPSs and tablet computers inform pilots as to precise location, weather, terrain, and traffic in even the most basic aircraft. Pay attention and we're far less likely to accidentally penetrate a thunderstorm or fly up a dead-end canyon than before. My biggest lesson learned in 50 years of flying is to separate rational concerns from irrational ones. Set aside any hokum about gut feelings. If your thorough homework indicates it's safe to fly, do so. If not, don't. But given the choice between gut feeling and facts, 
Always go with the facts. Otherwise, you'll never take off. Five decades and thousands of flight hours later, the technology has changed, but not the adventure. By now you know that piloting is phenomenally safer and easier than when I first launched Skyward. But the joys continue undiminished. Every takeoff and landing is still thrilling. Each gift of flight delivered to friends is still something most will remember for a lifetime. And stepping out of a personal aircraft at our destinations still fosters awe and admiration among the ground-bound souls who greet us. Most importantly, the miracles of sky, clouds, and earth from above are as exhilarating as ever. With the passage of time, flying only gets better. Thanks for riding along on today's Flying Carpet Adventure. Please help me continue this podcast by sharing your favorite Flying Carpet episodes on social media, posting reviews on your favorite podcast directories, and donating via my Greg Brown Flying Carpet website. Thanks in advance for your support. You can find photos from most episodes at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out my book of aviation adventure stories, Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, for which I was named Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. Learn about that and my other aviation books at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Also at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, you'll find my views from the flying carpet aerial photography, available in fine art metal prints and pilot achievement plaques. Oh, And I'd appreciate hearing your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Follow my social media sites, most of which can be found by searching Greg Brown Flying Carpet. And consider joining my student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. Thanks again for joining me on today's Flying Carpet Cockpit Adventure. Music by Hannes Brown. See you next time.